Robert Parrish played for 21 seasons, longer than anyone in the history of the NBA, which meant he came in as a teammate of Rick Barry and went out as a teammate of Michael Jordan. In between, the Chief won four titles, three of them for the iconic Celtics of the 1980s. With an astonishing ability to run the floor and the strength to work around the rim, he was a joy to watch. Larry Bird said the Celtic defense, quote, starts with Parrish. Even though I covered all those NBA finals, I hardly got to know him. So I'm going to get to know him now. <laughs> Welcome, Robert. For having me on your show. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's great. Are you, do you live in North Carolina? No, I I'm I'm, I used to. I'm in Louisiana now, back in my home state. You are. You yes. know, when you, where you grew up in Shreveport, were you guys more cowboy fans? Because that was kind of, you know, the Saints were just because you I and I are the same more, more towards the Saints. You think so? The house was torn. Uh, my father was a Cowboy fan. My mother was a Saints. The siblings was torn. I have uh, two sisters and a brother. So my brother and I were Cowboy fans and my, and my sisters were Saints. So the house was torn. A lot of trash talking, too. Tell me about your journey. I, I don't know that much about it. Um, mm -hmm. Were you always the tallest kid and always headed for basketball? Always the tallest kid, yes. Headed for basketball, I would say no. Growing up, uh, my neighbors and, and my brother and I, we played all sports except for basketball. No basketball. Played baseball, football. We ran track. We played a little hockey. We did all of that, but no basketball. I, had it not been for my junior high school coach, I probably just would have been another tall person because his wow. persistence, you know, he stayed on me. You're that tall for a reason. At least give it a shot. If it don't work out, at least you gave it a shot. And he would not leave it alone. So I had to give my junior high school coach some credit for me having an appetite for athletics. You know, do you ever think, I remember Bill Russell told me once that Kids who played a lot of different sports, like you said you did. He was particularly talking about uh, Tim Duncan's footwork or Patrick Ewing. They grew up playing soccer. Do you mm -hmm. think that helped you? I mean, you were so agile around the rim. I think it certainly played a part for me personally because I was growing so fast. I was always awkward and a little clumsy and, and my dexterity was a little off. So it took me a while for my, my coordination to catch up with how long my arms were and how long my body was. I should, I should be suffering from concussions right now. How many times <laughs> I have bumped my head. Were you ever self-conscious? You know, some guys who played in New York said they were glad that the Empire State Building was so tall because they always felt at six, eight, nine or seven feet, they felt self-conscious. I was self-conscious, but uh, my parents would not allow me to uh, feel bad or feel sorry for myself. They always told me to look at it as a gift. And uh, they echoed what my junior high school coach used to say, you're that tall for a reason. You know, God made you that tall for a reason. I'm like, well, whatever that reason is, I do not see it right now, but I'm going to take your word for it. And so it turned out to be a positive after all. Well, do you think that God made Manu Bowl taller than you so you could dunk over him in that dunk pool or whatever it was you guys had that, that game? 
Well, he gave me, he made me tall enough to try for sure to duck over him. Because <laughs> it's certainly helps to be tall. Er, you know, he tried to duck over New Bow because he was a very long and tall man. Tell me your, your story from, I remember you said when you went from Golden State to Boston, it was the outhouse to the penthouse. What, what wasn't working with Golden State and then you land in the most iconic franchise ever? Well, our problems uh, in, in, uh, when I was with the Golden State Warriors, we were a young team, we was inexperienced, and we were not playing together. Uh, we had a team of individuals, and uh, and I feel like that was our Achilles heel because we we were not as one as you got to be. You got to be team order in it. So I understood why it was so many individuals because they was auditioning for that next contract. Uh, if not going to be with the Warriors from some other team, so I understand that part. But what my what I couldn't get my teammates to see to realize and understand at the time, if we winning, everybody get a new contract. But for whatever reason, that 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 philosophy did not register with my teammates, and so we struggled mightily. So that's why I say I went from the outhouse to the penthouse because when I got traded to Boston, the attitude was just the opposite. We are a team. We play for the name on the front of the jersey, not the name on the back of the jersey. And that's the way I like it. Yeah, you never really sought the spotlight at all. But had you, were you even tired of basketball by the time you left Golden State? Did you ever think that this just is not for me? I knew it was going to be a short career. Had I stayed with, with, with the Warriors, the Golden State Warriors, I told myself this is going to be a short career. It was no fun, you know, just losing every night. And then then some of my teammates just had a poor attitude. When you get to the Celtics, um, you know, what what was the genius of Red Auerbach? He always seemed to be two chess moves ahead. Red always was thinking about next year. And he always looking at the team. What do we need? Especially if we did not win the championship. <clears throat> he would always evaluate the team. What does this team need to take that next step to win it all? If we just got to the conference finals or we lost in the second round or we got to the championship round and didn't win it. He was he had that sixth sense, if you will, for going out and getting the pieces or the players that we needed to be more successful than we were the year before. And that's something I always admired and respect about Red. And he was honest. He didn't sugarcoat it. If you were not in the future, he told you, you're not in the future. And I always respected that about Red. Well, I guess 14 years there, you never really heard that. <laughs> no, I'm glad to say. <laughs> he did not direct those words at me. <laughs> did uh, I mentioned before, you never sought really the glory or the spotlight. Um, wasn't it Casey who said you, uh, what do you say? Robert never makes a fuss. I tried not to. Uh, we had a, we had a, uh, I always feel like there's one of the reasons why we were successful, uh, the big three, because I had the lesser ego of the three. And so I was more patient and understanding. It didn't matter to me who got the most shots, uh, who was the uh, team leader. And I let Kevin and Larry go back and forth with that. So as long as we've winning, 
I didn't have many complaints because winning, in my opinion, is a serious antidote. It yeah. solves a lot of problems. You're talking about a, a vaccine. Now, that's a true vaccine right there. <laughs> <laughs> the greatest deodorant. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Covers up a lot of things. <laughs> Is um, Were you that way naturally, do you think? Or you got to the Celtics and you said, I have to, I have to tone it down to, for the greater good. I, uh, uh, even in college, I was unassuming. Uh, never, I never sought the, uh, the limelight or the, uh, the uh, spotlight, if you will. It wasn't important to me. As long as we was winning, and that was the most important to me. So when I came to the Celtics, uh, I'm, I was a new kid on the block, so I wanted to take things slow and easy. I didn't want to rub anybody the wrong way. And I wasn't coming there thinking that I'm all that, you know. So uh, I tried to keep a low profile and so ease my way into the, my, my new family, my new home. And things worked out. Did, did you have a sense of Boston as a racist city? I mean, you probably know that um, I think Paul Silas was the first Celtic to live year round in Boston. I mean, what was what was your impression going there? And then what was your experience? I was leery. I had heard the stories about uh, how segregated Boston was. Uh, and then I come to find out the perception is far worse than reality. It's not as bad as, as, as people uh, make it out to be. Now, I'm sure at one time it was difficult being a minority there, but I have to say race relations has improved significantly when I arrived. But I've certainly heard the horror stories because Bill Russell told me some things that, ooh, were disturbing, to say the least. Part of it in Boston, as a native Bostonian, is that geographically, all the people were separated. You know, Roxbury was geographically in its own place, the Italian in the North End, the Irish in Southie or Dorchester. So there weren't, and maybe that was a product of gerrymandering, you know, years before, but... May have been, but I, I have to say though, uh, I, I was I was very proud to find out that it was not as bad as I was anticipating. Because uh, when I got traded, my friends and, and uh, family, uh, be careful, watch out who you hang out with, pay attention to where you are, you know, all of that, you know, because I was going to Boston, and it turns out I didn't need to be as aware as they was telling me I needed to be. So I was happy about that. But hadn't you gone to an integrated high school? That's a pretty well-known high school that you went to. Oh, yes. Yes. But but coming from the South, I wasn't as uncomfortable going into potential hostile environment in terms of uh, race uh, and, and tolerance. So I was accustomed uh, to how some people feel about other people, depending on your on your skin color, and my parents were were great uh, from this perspective. They always told us treat people the way they treat you. Don't judge a person by the color of their skin. Judge a person by how they treat you, and don't go by the perception because how they treat someone else might be just the opposite of how they treat you. And I always try to keep that philosophy in mind. Wow. Wise words. Turn out to be. <laughs> <laughs> as um, 
you know, both um, somebody who's respected the Celtics my entire life and got to be around. Uh, I covered all those finals you were in. But uh, tell me this, the 84 finals, which, you know, everybody to a man says was just a war, everyone who was involved in it. Uh, but the first thing I want to ask you is, remember, we all flew commercially back then. And uh, the team, you guys would maybe be on a different flight. But Jack Nicholson was always on, like I was with CBS and he was always on the CBS flight. Did you and he ever talk about the chief? Yes. <gasps> I've never yes. heard this. He, Tell me. Uh, once he found out that I was a, uh, a fan of his work, uh, I never forget this. It was, uh, I think it was my. Second year, second second year with, with the Celtics, and we were warming up, getting ready to uh, play the game. And when I was had went through the layup line, I was coming back to the opposite side, and he was walking to his seat, and he he called me over, and was telling me that uh, he was happy to hear that I was a fan of his work, and and uh, and telling me that uh, that he heard about how I came about the nickname because of the character in in the, in the Shining. Uh, the no, chief. it's one one flew yeah. over the cuckoo. Well, excuse me, one flew the cuckoo nest. Thank you for correcting me. That's okay. One flew the cuckoo nest, and he was saying that uh, he was happy uh, uh, about uh, my support of his career, and I told him that uh, I'd appreciate him acknowledging me and supporting. He said, "I don't like the Celtics, but I like you." <laughs> <laughs> so I told him I appreciate that. You know, he was uh, one. He was an authentic fan. I mean, that guy didn't just jump into Showtime. Here I am. And but two, how how the irony of that that your nickname would be such a major figure at that time in uh, such a major movie, and Jack Nicholson would be sitting at courtside every single game. And I never would have thought that I would have met someone that I have admired from afar, and it turns out that he was a a, a fan. Of, of uh, the Lakers, and it just worked out. You know that rivalry thing between the Celtics and the Lakers, and and uh, and uh, getting to know Jack because he uh, uh, is a diehard fan. I love his loyalty to the Lakers, winning or losing. He supports the, the Lakers, so I, I always respected that about Jack. How how did you see that? I mean, a, a lot of the guys in, in those games in '84 say it was the most physical. Game well, game four, most physical battle they ever faced. How how do you summarize that series? Grueling, exhausting. Uh, could have gone either way. We could have won it. Uh, Lakers could have won it. And uh, I always liked that about the two sides. Uh, we I always feel like we brought out the best in the Lakers. The Lakers brought out the best in us. Goes back to that rivalry with Russell Chamberlain when they was with. When Chamberlain was with Philadelphia, and then he went to the Lakers, and he and Russell continued that rivalry, and then Larry and Magic picked up that torch and continued that rivalry between the Lakers and the Celtics. So always admired it and respected it because I would feel like it made me a better player. Because if you didn't bring your A game, chances are you're going to get embarrassed. And I always liked that. We always brought out the best in, in each other. Well, all the Lakers from those years say that from day one of the season, they were thinking Celtics. Was was it that way for you? Oh, yes. Just like they were reading the papers every morning 
to see did we win and see where we were in the standings, we did the same thing for the Lakers. We all had the newspaper. And then if we didn't read the paper, our teammates told us, you know, the Lakers won or they lost. They had first place, second place, you know, whatever the standings may be. We followed one another because we felt like if we was going to win the championship, we probably going to go through the Lakers. Right. Oh, that is so great when it can be an Ollie Frazier thing like that. Oh, yes. Similar. Yes. Yeah, similar. similar. Two heavyweights. <laughs> Did, uh, tell me where you exactly where you were. Were you on the court to see Kevin clothesline Rambus? Like, what was your perspective of that moment? I, I was running back on defense and I just stopped at half court because that was so unlike Kevin. Anybody that knows Kevin knows that that was just a moment. That is so unlike Kevin to be that aggressive and to have all that negative energy thrown at someone. That was so uncharacteristic of Kevin. It just made me stop. I stopped in my tracks. I could not believe it. Of all the people on both sides, Kevin would be the last one that I would say that would do something like that. But hadn't Danny Ainge challenged him like that after Larry called you your own team sissies in the game before? Didn't Danny challenge? Why isn't somebody else like didn't Danny say, I'm the one who's hated all over America. Can't somebody else step up here? He did express uh, that thought. And uh, as I said earlier, Kevin was the last person I would have thought that would have stepped up. And as a matter of fact, there was a turning point in the series when, when he clotheslined Ramis. And I'm just glad that Ramis did not get hurt because that could have turned out to be something ugly and devastating. So I was happy about that. But as, as Ali said, that when, when, when he beat uh, Sonny Listens, Shook up the world. That play <laughs> by Kevin shook up the world. No question about it. That was the turning point. Yeah, it seemed like you mentally owned them after that. Whether oh, or yeah, not- they, they were shell shocked. <laughs> now, if I, now, had it been me, a Larry, a Danny, uh, ML, Cedric, yes, I don't think it would have had the same devastating impact. But because Kevin did it, that just shook up. Not only did it shake up the Lakers, it shook the Celtics up. We couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> we wanted to know what happened. That's true, because it had been that dunk fest in game three. Yeah, exactly. Know, so. they, they blew us out of the gym in game three. Ran us out of L.A., so to speak. And that's one <laughs> of the reasons why Larry said that we played like sissies. We played soft, which we did. We played soft. And so Larry was definitely spot on with his assessment uh, about how soft and easy that we that we were in, in game three. But I have to say, though, Kevin woke everybody up, <laughs> I must say. <laughs> well, the next game, um, you know, especially for a woman who's trying to look nice, you know, while doing the job, that it was just. Well, it was what, 125 degrees, right? In game five, dripping, disgusting. I'm just going to say <laughs> it was tough to stay <laughs> pretty and beautified in those conditions, just sweating out of everything. Yes. Did you ever, did you look across the court and see Kareem 
um, sucking on that oxygen mask? Oh, oh, definitely. That gave me a little boost. Because then I realized he's just as tired as I am. Only difference is I'm not sucking oxygen. That's the only difference. No, everybody was cramping, though. Oh, remember, I think you. Oh, without a doubt. I cramped up afterwards. After the game, my calves cramped up because we lost so much fluid and, and, uh, and liquids from our body. So, and not to mention, back then, the old garden, there was no, no air conditioning, very little venting. And not to mention that, that that's back then, as you remember, you could smoke in the arena. And that smoke haze was, was over the floor. And that just made it more stifling because there wasn't much uh, fresh air circulating because of all the smokers in the building. So it was it was very challenging on everybody uh, physically. And not to mention the game itself was very physical because back then, you know, you can do all the hand checking and, and bumping and, 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 and uh, being overly aggressive with one another, which further exhausted you. How do you think, since you were played with both organizations, uh, and you won a title, excuse me, you won a title with Chicago. How do you think the 84 Celtics would have fared against the 96 Bulls? Oh, I feel, I feel like uh, it would have been a very uh, competitive uh, series. Uh, I feel like uh, I've been asked this question before about the 84 team against the Bulls and the 86 team against uh, the Bulls. And I have always said we had the advantage for, for uh, this particular reason, our bench was better. We had a stronger bench. And that would have made the difference with the 84 team and definitely with the 86 team. Because we had all the famous coming off the bench and with the 86 team. So I feel like that would have been the difference. We had more firepower. And that would have, would have won the series for had we been in a seven-game series. Well, in that game seven, um, in... 84. Uh, is that is that when Max, when Cedric gave Worthy the choke sign? I mean, wasn't that game like out of control? The whole series out of control. Not the whole series. After that Kevin incident, things, as I said before, things changed. For, for us, favorably. But you can definitely see there was a shift in, in everybody's attitude and everybody. Uh, and, then, and then I'll never forget that after the game, Everybody walked in the locker room and everybody just looked at Kevin. Like, what happened to you? What brought that on? It was possessed. He couldn't explain it. All that he could say was, it just happened. You know, but it was, um, yeah, the whole tenor. Like, remember, wasn't ML calling them, come out of the locker room, you L.A. fakers? I mean, he's he's the one that turned uh, fakers instead of the Lakers. He was, he was one of the first people to start calling the Lakers the fakers. Uh, he, he always felt like they was overrated. They got too much attention, too much hype. He always said, like, because they were so much better than everyone in the West, that's why he said they was overrated, because they had a stockpile of talent. They were so much talent-wise, they were so much better than everybody in the West, which was some truth to that. Yeah, because you guys were really suffering with only, like, 10 Hall of Famers. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> did, did you ever um, look at Kareem as kind of uh, your approaches to the game to me seem similar in that 
uh, it was business. You know, the court was business. You, neither of you were into drama. Did you ever say, you know, this is a really worthy competitor? Oh, no question. The, the, the most formidable adversary I would play against. No mm-hmm. question. Because that hook shot, only man I played against, I can never change, alter, uh, disrupt him defensively. He was so focused, so dialed in, and, and, and was blessed. That left leg of Kareem should be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, he had the lift and the elevation, you know, to get that shot off consistently. And, and, and because he was blessed uh, with talent to shoot it with such high accuracy, it was pretty much unstoppable. So he's the only one that I played against that. Wasn't a whole lot I could do. Just hope he was not hot. If he wasn't hot, I had a chance. But if he was hot, this is going to be a long night. But conversely, didn't you think that you had, I think Bill Walton said you were the best big man, medium range shooter in the history of the league. Didn't you feel when you faced the basket that that shot was going in? Oh, oh no question. Yes, I did. I, I gave him all he wanted on the other end, but I'm just speaking for me defensively. I never played against anyone where at least one time I could make him change his shot, no matter how far I pushed him out on the, on the floor. And, 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 and think about this, Leslie. How many people you know that can shoot a 17-foot hook shot with accuracy? That shot magic hit against us. I consider that just, just luck. Because he shot that shot 10 times, he wouldn't make eight. He was young then. He didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> I get all that, but I'm talking about to shoot it with confidence and accuracy, no one did it like Kareem. Well, where'd you learn that? I think Bob Ryan called it your moonshot. Where'd you, where'd you learn that thing? My uh, junior high school coach, believe it or not, Leslie, was five foot three. And because he was, <laughs> because he was so short, <laughs> and, and when I first started playing basketball, I used to shoot the ball real flat on a straight line. And he used to tell me, one day I'm going to meet someone my size because I was about six, eight uh, in the seventh grade. I was exceptionally tall for, for, for junior high school. And he told me that one day I'm going to meet someone my size and I'm going to struggle because I can't get my shot off. So he, the push broom, he took the handle out of a push broom and had me shooting over that broom handle. And that's why I got, that's why I had such a high arcing shot. <laughs> On, on, on my on my jump shot <laughs> because it was unusual to see someone seven foot one have a yeah a, a such move. a high arc yeah. yes that's yeah. because I'm shooting on that broom handle <laughs> uh, because my, my 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 coach was so short you know he barely came up to my chest <laughs> <laughs> well you know it's funny because after that game seven and eighty four I thought to myself you know um, it, it wasn't Migraines weren't the biggest headache for Kareem. You were. <laughs> I tried to be, uh, uh, like I said, uh, Leslie, for us, we felt like we uh, had two advantages. They were shell-shocked because of what Kevin did to Ramis, and we had game seven back at our place. So we felt like, you know, we had a little edge of going into game seven. Because of those two incidents, and it turns out to be favorable. But it could have, as I said before, it could have gone either way. 
because Kevin grabbing Ramis out of the air, it could have sparked the Lakers. So it could have gone the opposite way. And instead of instead of getting us all lathered up, it could have lathered up the Lakers. And we really had our hands full. Why in uh, 86, which I think you can make the argument, the greatest team of all time, did um, Bill Walton always said that when he first came to the Celtics, the first thing he did was go to your house. Is that true? He did. He did. And that's one of the reasons, Leslie, why I have uh, tremendous respect for Bill. I call him William, not Bill, by the way. <laughs> call him William. And, and uh, because of that, because he did not have to come to my house because I didn't have a voice in who was on the roster and who was not on the roster. So for him to be concerned and to show respect that he did not have to show, that's one of the reasons why I have such high regard for, for William. And that's why he was my presenter when I was inducted into the Hall of Fame. Because of the respect he showed me when he was considering uh, coming to the Celtics. Yeah, that meant so much to him. Was he as eccentric back then? Yes. And believe it or not, a stutterer. And he ended up, ended up having a job talking. Now think about <laughs> that for a second. <laughs> Didn't some of you guys used to imitate him? He told me once that some guys would give it the with the low voice, you know, the baritone, you, you, you guys. Kevin was always... Uh, always needing him and, and uh, talking about uh, the stuttering issues. So I, I used to tell Bill, that's just respect, because Kevin always admired and, and respect Bill from afar. And then having him as a teammate, you know, he found out that how cool Bill was and that Bill had had a, a sense of humor. And so they were, they became very, very good friends, as it turns out. But Kevin gave him a hard time about the, the stuttering. Well, you turned out, in the, at, well, after all those guys retired, you sort of became a merry prankster. But was that team, that 86 team, as much fun as Bill said it was? I thought so. I thought that uh, what, for, for me, Leslie, what made it uh, so much fun is that everybody checked their egos at the door. That's what I uh, remind most because you talking about some type A personalities in the locker room. You know, you got all the famous in there, and everybody left all of that drama at the at the locker room door. Nobody had a hidden agenda. We had one goal, and that was to try to win the championship. And I think that's one of the reasons why we were successful because. There was no I. It was all about team. And anybody that was starting to drift towards that, me, myself, or I, he was quickly checked. And I and and uh Dennis Johnson was was the uh headmaster, uh taskmaster, if you will. Whomever was misbehaving, uh, having issues with a teammate or management. Dennis Johnson was always the one to step up and smooth out those wrinkles. And I think there's another reason why we we got along so well, because he did not tolerate any indifference, any friction in the locker room. We are a family. We need to get along. We need to respect one another. 
And, and that's, I think that's one of the reasons why we were successful. You know, it just occurred to me when you were saying that with DJ that, do you think there was anything to, I mean, you guys were the most normal superstars and I've covered sports for 45 years. You were the most normal superstars I think I've ever encountered. And I wonder if some of that, could some of that have come from that, you know, you went to Centenary, that Larry went to Indiana State. You weren't the Lakers. You know, they were blue bloods, right? They were from true. UCLA and North that Carolina. They played a part, I think. Yeah, upbringing plays a part. Humility, yeah. be humble. I think it played a part. And, and, then, and then when you don't have a lot, it's tough to have a big head, Leslie. You don't have a lot. You got, you, you're pretty much forced to be humble and grateful. So it turned it turned out to to uh to be a plus. I, I have always said this about Larry. One of the, one of the reasons why he was such a great leader, it was his humility, how he treated everyone, because clearly he was our leader, our best player, but he didn't carry himself like that. He carried himself just like one of the boys, and I always respected that about Larry, because he did not have to. Be as humble and gracious as he was. Did was he as um, careful with money as we all heard? No question. <laughs> That'd be a nice careful. How about cheap? <laughs> <laughs> he probably wouldn't deny it. <laughs> no, Larry, he wouldn't. He would. I always respected it about Larry, though. If he didn't have to spend it, he would not spend it, and I respect it. <laughs> Did you also respect, I mean, he was the guy that was there right at 3.30. I mean, everybody says every superstar works hard, but wasn't he somebody who was at the gym, you know, early hours? You have a better understanding why he was the player that he was because he put the time in, the work, the focus, the dedication. That's why he was such a tremendous player, not to mention his confidence. I don't think I ever met anyone that had uh, that strong of a conviction, the confidence in his abilities to get it done. Anytime, Leslie, you make this statement, God is the only person that can guard you. You got to believe. You got to be a believer. (laughs) That's a point. Think about that for a second. But why was it, what was the twinkle in him or whatever that remember in the three-point shooting uh, during the All-Star weekend, he'd just say who's going to come in second, but you didn't hate him for it. That just speaks to the confidence, Leslie. Like, he wasn't arrogant about it. Right. Because 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 Larry, uh, uh, first of all, he's just a consummate trash talker. He always talking trash. So that's another reason why most people did not, don't take him serious. Like, like he, is, he is not threatening. He's just a trash talker. He just talked trash. Like, I'm better than you. There's nothing you can do about it. And then he goes out and try to prove that. And say, when he walk in the locker room and say, who got second? Because I know who got first. That's why nobody took offense to it. Because Larry, dude, he says it in such a way where it's playful, but he's still serious about it, too. Yeah, and he delivered. Oh, no question about that. More times than not, he delivered. And not to mention, tell you a funny story. We were playing Phoenix. We were in Phoenix, playing Phoenix. And, and Tom Chambers was, was their number one guy, their star. 
And Larry told, told Chambers that uh, the coach must really dislike him because there's only one white man that can guard him, and that's God. And you don't look nothing like God. And you could have saw the look that, <laughs> that Tom gave Larry. Like, seriously, you're going to say that? <laughs> so that just, I said it to say this. It just speaks to Larry's confidence and, and, and his belief in his abilities. And like I said, more times than not, Larry delivered because he wasn't always great, but when he had to be great, most of the time he delivered. What about that? Were you in that game with him when he played it left hand just to amuse himself? And we're talking trash. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he was talking trash about it too. That's how good I am. What he said, I'm going to score on you with my opposite. My left hand. All left, all left hand. I'm a dribble left. I'm a shoot it left. I'm gonna make it with my left hand. And he did it. He was he one of the few players that predicted something and was able to do it. Uh the, the, the McLeod was the coach with the Phoenix at the time. He had assistant coach that were very aggressive and very vocal. And he was always hyping up his, his team and and he was telling uh Hyping up Tom Chambers, telling Tom Chambers that he's better than Larry. You just got to go out and prove that you're better than Larry Bird. And Larry said, because you said that what you, and he didn't realize that Larry was standing in the huddle <laughs> behind everybody. And Larry was like, since you said that, he pointed, see that spot right there over in the three-point? I'm going right there. And, and we were down by two. I'm going to hit a three right there and walk off the floor. And Larry in. And what was so what was so alarming? They let Larry catch the basketball first of all, Leslie. Let him catch it, which was a mistake. He caught it, turned and shot it, and he and Larry did not even look to see that he make it. He walked off the floor holding up one finger. That's the greatest. All, all net. <laughs> that <laughs> is the greatest. Net. Yes, you, you know how, how Steph Curry shoots and he turns to walk away before the ball goes in. Larry was doing it in the 80s. Do you you like where the game is now or do you miss post-play? I don't don't like that it took so much physicality out of it. I don't like that part. I understand why they did it to clean up the game. I wish he was able to be more physical, but but they have legislated that out of the game. But that's the only thing I don't like about today's game. Too soft. Yeah. Do, do you also think, could you have imagined getting a rebound and passing it out to the three-point line? Just not happen. Oh, no. I worked that hard for a rebound. I am less than, of course, we need a three-pointer to win the ball game. Then I would pass it out. But doesn't the game seem to you that it's become a lot of the step-back three? And like the Celtics, they seem to have isolation every fourth quarter. Well, I'm going to blame it on the Warriors, this three-point craze, Stephen Curry and Mr. Clay Titter Thompson. They had just uh, spoiled and corrupt uh, basketball, the way it's viewed and played today. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why uh, the NBA has adopted the three-point shooting, because whoever wins it, 
Everybody tried to piggyback and mirror that team that won it and, and Golden State for a minute. They was they was the gold standard for three-point shooting. But teams got to realize there's only one Curry and one Thompson. Who else going who else shoot the ball like that? Yeah, it's I mean, even college coaches tell me that they'll recruit a kid who's six eight and he just wants to shoot the three. <laughs> and- I blame it on Steph Curry. That's who I'm blaming it all. Well, I have to just thank you for this. You know, you made the 50th team anniversary deservedly. You made the 75th team. You'll make the 100th team. And I just, I want to thank you. You know, on both ends of the floor, Robert, you were just a joy to watch. Leslie, thank you uh, for your very kind remarks. And it was a pleasure reminiscing with you. And I want to wish you continued success going forward and have a very healthy and blessed day. And that was my conversation with Robert Parrish. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today on Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you stream your podcast to enjoy new episodes every week. In Conversation with Leslie Visser is part of the Sirius XM Podcast Network and is available on the SXM app included with most subscriptions. The executive producer is the great Andrew Emmer, sound designed by Robert Moore, and special thanks to Sirius XM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. Talk to you next week. Sirius XM Podcasts.